Well, just when we started a new series, Christ in the Psalms, we're doing a one-week tangent, uh, and that is because of the, the time of year. It, um, what's tomorrow? Halloween, and thank you, it's, it's Reformation Day, yes. Um, Halloween um, is derived from the older English form of uh, All Saints, the, the Eve before All Saints Day, so All Hallows Eve. And uh, if you think about it, um, re- re- remembering the lives of the saints who have gone before us is a very edifying thing. That's Hebrews chapter 11. But over time, there developed within the church this, this fascination uh, with the, the dead. And of course, our, our culture has just really latched onto that. Our culture, which if you think about it, is very much these days a culture of death. And so um, those, those aspects associated with Halloween that uh, glorify death uh, have, have really been emphasized. And, and so what happened on October 31st, 1517, um, is just not even thought of by the vast, vast majority of, of Americans, and sadly, even American Christians. And yet it, it was 505 years ago tomorrow that an obscure Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed his now famous 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg uh, not to launch what history calls the Protestant Reformation, but to spur a theological um, debate about the um, Roman Catholic Church's abuses of indulgences and what the Bible teaches in contradistinction to that. And uh, the, the rest, as they say, is, is history. But it turns out that the uh, 95 Theses and uh, the doctrines that were brought back to light, back to prominence during the Protestant Reformation are not just a relic of history, and they're not just a product of the the protest between Protestants, Protestants, and the Roman Catholic Church, but understood correctly, the heart and soul of the Protestant Reformation is really the heart and soul of biblical Christianity. And I believe that that is really seen in the, um, the five sola slogans, the five solas. So, sola scriptura, solus Christus, sola fide, sola gratia, and soli deo gloria. Uh, that's really the heart of biblical Christianity. And that's why it's worth reflecting on those doctrines, not for their historical value, but for their ongoing value of confessing the faith, um, the, the biblical gospel. And uh, just one other note by way of introduction here, and that is that uh, the word sola in its different Latin forms there in those, those slogans, that's very important because 
the Roman Catholic Church did not and does not deny the scriptures, Christ, faith, or grace. But the Roman Catholic Church, while it doesn't deny, it, it adds to. It did then and it continues to today. And so the church adds uh, tradition, church tradition and papal authority to the authority of the Bible. The add the church's sacraments and the believer's obedience to the finished work of Christ. They add the merits of the saints and the believer's own good works to faith. And they add the believer's cooperation to God's sovereign grace. And the result, whether it's stated or not, is a religious system in which God is not the only one who is glorified for human salvation. And then uh, one, one other note then, and that is that when we do talk about the solas of the Protestant Reformation, uh, it's impossible to avoid mentioning the Roman Catholic Church because that was the historical context. But by the same token, the Roman Catholic Church aren't the only ones who need to hear the five solas. Sadly, today, many contemporary evangelicals have wandered off the Protestant reservation and have embraced unbiblical doctrines that are just as contrary to the five solas as dogmatic Roman Catholic teaching. And so the five solas have something to say to all of us. And I trust that you'll see that as we look at these scriptures. So there's not just one passage we're looking at today. We're going to let our fingers do the walking. Ah, not many of you are old enough to remember that from the yellow pages. Let your fingers do the walking. But we're going to look at a whole host of scriptures, um, some representative scriptures for sure. But uh, we will look at a bunch of scriptures so that we can re refresh our memories about the five solas in honor of the, the time of year. And so the first one is sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And you can see why this is the first sola. It's uh, often referred to as um, the, the formal um, basis of the Protestant Reformation. And it, has, it, it uh, draws uh, hard boundaries around the scope of the, the church's authority. Where, where, where do we go? to get answers on uh, salvation and religion and walking with God. And the, the answer of the Protestant Reformation, reflecting the answer of the Bible, is, well, to the Scriptures and to the Scriptures alone. So, quoting here from the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 1, as it basically mimics the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. 
Nothing is ever to be added to the scriptures, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human traditions. And then the the Belgic Confession, which was also a confession that came out of the Reformation era, stated it very succinctly in these words, we believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. And just in case you think that we're um, erecting a straw man, only to pull pull down a straw man by by argument, um, this is from the Second Vatican Council, which met, met throughout the 1960s. It wasn't just like one event, but there were several sessions. And the the Second Vatican Council uh, affirmed this. It is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. Therefore, sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same devotion and reverence. Hence, sola. So let's look at a few passages of of Scripture. The the classic text is 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, the Apostle Paul wrote this. All Scripture... And what does he mean by scripture? Well, he certainly means the Old Testament scriptures. For a a long time, the Old Testament scriptures represented the, the canon of scripture for the early church. But then we know that uh, under the uh, leadership of the apostles, uh, the canon of scripture grew to include all uh, 27 books of the New Testament, including Paul's own writings. And that's a separate argument, a separate separate subject. If you want to look into that more, you can read books like the Canon of Scripture, of Scripture by F.F. F. Bruce. But whatever can properly called Scripture, Paul says, is breathed out by God. And literally that means God Breathed, theonoustos. That means it originates from God. It communicates the mind and the heart of God. And therefore, if God cannot lie, then the scriptures cannot lie. If the scriptures, if God can't make mistakes, then the scriptures can't make mistakes. If God is without error and infallible, then the scriptures are without error and infallible because they are God-breathed. And they're profitable for teaching or, or doctrine. And I'll just poke, like I have uh, a lot, I think, kind of lately, that within evangelicalism, there's this disdain for doctrine. Lots of Christians just want to be told what to do, how to be happy, how to make your life better. But in the, even though the Bible talks about those things, they're all couched in doctrine. And the number one use 
of the scriptures is doctrine. For reproof, for correction. So the scriptures don't always make us feel good. They eventually make us feel good, but sometimes they have to make us feel bad first. And for training in righteousness. And then notice verse 17, which talks to us about the sufficiency of scripture. In order that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The scriptures are sufficient. The scriptures don't tell us very much at all about differential calculus or astrophysics or such things, but they still give us a framework for the study of math and science that always have to be kept in mind. They, they tell us, for example, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness, that in him all things hold together and consist. And so we would expect to be able to do math and science and all of the rest because this is my father's world. And so even though the Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything, it is sufficient for the minister, for the man of God. It is sufficient to make the man of God competent, equipped for every good work, and it is sufficient for every single Christian to know how to be saved, to know about God, to know how to walk with God and to please God, and yes, even how to do science in terms of giving us a biblical framework. And then look over with me at Jude 3. Uh, and I'm skipping over a lot. We're just going to look at some representative passages here. Jude is the last book before the book of Revelation. Jude says something here that is really important. Jude Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for what? For the faith. He's not saying to contend for, for your faith subjectively, personally. He's saying to contend for the faith, objectively, corporately. Atten uh, contend for the faith, excuse me, I meant to put this on silent. And then no no notice what else he says about the faith. Contend earnestly for the faith, that body of doctrine, that system of truth, that together communicates the Christian faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And uh, those several words, once for all, translate one Greek word, hapax, which is a very important word 
it means a single occurrence it, to the exclusion of any other similar occurrence. In other words, once and for all, once and never again. Hapax, once for all. That term is going to be applied a lot to the Lord Jesus Christ and his work of redemption by the author of the book of Hebrews. Jesus died once for all to redeem us from our sins. But here, the once for allness has to do with the delivery from God to the church of the objective contents of our faith. The Bible, the New Testament. And so even though the whole New Testament didn't come all at once in one sitting, it, it took a process of time over several decades to, to complete, yet it was a one-time, once-for-all process, never to be repeated, never again, a similar uh, um, one-time occurrence, a single occurrence. It's a very important verse. And along these lines, look back in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. First couple of verses, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God is the speaking God. Uh, God communicates on the wavelength of words, which is why him, his image bearers are able to communicate on the wavelength of words, because we reflect God. And in Old Testament times, God was speaking in stages, progressively, step by step. But it was all working up to something. It was pointing to something there was a crescendo, a grand finale of God speaking, verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God spoke in many times and in many ways, but now he has spoken once for all. It is finished whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the grand finale of God's speaking to mankind, and Jesus is um, the main subject of the New Testament scriptures. The New Testament scriptures tell us about his coming into the world, about his life and ministry, death and resurrection. The New Testament scriptures tell us about the implications of Christ's uh, work on our behalf in our lives. It's all about Jesus. And in Jesus, God has spoken. So look with me now in Matthew chapter 15. What happens when the traditions of man collide with the word of God? Matthew chapter 15.
starting in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So there was this whole body of tradition that the Jewish elders held to, and Jesus' disciples broke that tradition in this specific way that they did not wash their hands ceremonially like they were supposed to when they ate. This had nothing to do with hygiene. It had everything to do with ceremony. And the Old Testament did not require this type of thing. This is not the law of God. This is the tradition of the elders. And so Jesus answers them in verse 3, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, fifth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That was part of the Mosaic law. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. That was the tradition of the elders in the case of caring for one's parents. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. This is one example that Jesus gives, but this is what happens. When we venerate human tradition, we, we set up this inevitable head-on collision because eventu eventually human traditions are going to require something that go against the word of God. And then we end up uh, obeying human traditions uh, and thereby making void the word of God. And then he goes on to say, you hypocrites, and he cites from Isaiah chapter 29. So this is what happens when human tradition uh, is, is lifted up and put on the same level as the word of God. They're not on the same level. Uh, we have traditions as a church. We, we are conscious of the fact that we're standing on the shoulders of uh, countless men and women, saints, believers, who have come before us. We, we have a confession of faith, and we admire historical confessions of faith from church history, but they are not the word of God. They're not on the same level as the word of God. They're simply human confessions of doctrines that the word of God teaches. And on, on this subject, we're reminded of, of the words, supposedly, of Martin Luther at uh, the Imperial Diet of Worms, April 18, 1521, where he was, he was uh, commanded to recant of his writings and teachings. And Martin Luther said, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture 
or by cogent reasons. If I am not satisfied by the, by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Sola Scriptura. The second sola is solus Christus. Christ alone. And uh, for this, I'll quote from um, an essay by Matthew Barrett on the Gospel Coalition website, which is very, very helpful. Matthew Barrett says that uh, solus Christus, Christ alone means, Christ alone is the basis on which the ungodly are justified in God's sight. Christ alone. Now, let's do a little jet tour through the book of Hebrews. Look in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, notice verses 25 through 27. Consequently, he, the context is Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost, which means to, to the nth degree, all the way to the end, nothing lacking, nothing needs to be added to it. Save, he's able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The uniqueness of Christ, because of the utter sufficiency of his uh, sacrifice of himself in behalf of sinners like us. But then the writer of the book of Hebrews goes on, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, the, the priests under the uh, Aaronic priesthood in the Old Testament. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, over and over and over again, day after day, year after year, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, hapax, when he offered up himself. Skip over to chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Which is a parallel statement to he is able to save to the uttermost. 
by dying, by offering up his own lifeblood as our great high priest, Jesus has secured an eternal, not temporary, redemption. He secured it. He didn't make the down payment waiting for anyone or anything else to make up the difference. He has secured an eternal redemption. And then skip down to verses 25 through 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. An elaboration on the meaning of the words um, he is able to save to the uttermost. By his once for all sacrifice, he has put away sin by the sacrifice of of himself. Notice chapter 10, verses 10 through 14. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. No wonder Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. No wonder the Apostle Paul elaborated to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Only Jesus is capable of, of removing our sin. Only Jesus has successfully obtained for us eternal redemption. That's why nothing can be added to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Quoting again from the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 8 this time, this office of mediator between God and humanity is appropriate for Christ alone, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. This office may not be transferred from him to anyone else, either in whole or in part. Solus Christus. The third sola is sola fide, faith alone. And faith alone answers the question, okay, so now we understand where to go for our information, the scriptures alone. Now we know where our salvation is to be found 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, how do we get it? It is by faith alone. So quoting from Matthew Barrett again, the believer receives the redemption Christ has accomplished only through faith. And then, quoting again from the 1689, faith that receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the only instrument of justification. So let's go back and do a little review of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. In verse 10, we read, none is righteous, no, not one. And then Paul goes on to quote various passages from the Psalms to prove to us that none is righteous, no, not one, including Jews, including Gentiles, including you, including me, including anyone else that we might turn to to help us with our justification. Who is going to help us in our standing before God since there is none righteous, no, not one? There's nothing that you can do to make yourself righteous in God's sight. Even if you were to turn over a new leaf and start to do good when previously you were living a life of sin, even in your now doing good, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be uh, polluted somehow in your heart and mind and motives. And also, even if you could start to do perfectly good in thought, word, and deed from here on out, that has no power to take away your past sin because doing good is just what you ought to do. None is righteous, no, not one. So if we are going to be saved, it has to be the work of God. It has to be the gift of God. Can't be by the law, because in verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law can point out and highlight our sin, but the law cannot make us holy. Skip down to verse 22. The law and the prophets manifest the gospel, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not what we do by obeying the law, by keeping God's commandments. We, we, we receive the righteousness of God. We need righteousness. That's our problem. We're unrighteous. None is righteous, no, not one. So what God offers us is not an imperfect human righteousness, but the very righteousness of God, which is received through faith in Jesus Christ. And then skip down to verse 25. This, Jesus, this Christ Jesus, God put forward 
as a propitiation by his blood. And that word propitiation is uh, a fancy word that simply means that the wrath of God against sin has been satisfied. The, the wrath of God has been fulfilled. It's been turned away. And it is by, it was, it's been turned away by Christ in his death. And how do we receive this? To be received by faith. And, and far from a cheap grace form of salvation, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, period. Not who has faith in Jesus and goes to the priest. Not who has faith in Jesus and is an overall good person. Not who has faith in Jesus and is going to do a bunch of good works to make up for the past. The one who has faith in Jesus, period. In fact, this system of salvation is so beyond human imagination. Notice what Paul says in chapter 4 and verse 5. And so to the one who does not work, that is, he's not working for his justification, but believes in him, trusts in him, has faith in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. No wonder Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16 to say, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Come on, Paul, stop repeating yourself. But we need that. We need it to be driven home to our hearts and our minds because there is something within us that wants to make it a, a, a do-it-yourself project and say, you know, I'm so glad for Jesus. I'm so glad for salvation, but I must have something to do with this. Quoting from Martin Luther again, this is from his biography, um, actually his, uh, I believe it was his commentary in the book of Romans. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith, Romans 1, 17 and 18. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. 
sola fide. The fourth sola is sola gratia, grace alone. And if you think about it, if salvation has been purchased beginning to end, every last quadrillionth of a penny of it by the Lord Jesus Christ, and if it's received by grace alone, I'm sorry, through faith alone, then then it stands to reason that salvation is by grace alone. So, Matthew Barrett again, all of our salvation from beginning to end is by grace and grace alone. Look in Ephesians. Some Christians believe that the, um, the final transaction, the final occurrence in our experience of our salvation, that's by grace. But surely I had something to do with the process leading up to that. Well, notice Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, not just asleep, not just injured, not just sick, dead. Clinically, spiritually, dead. But you weren't idle. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind, uh, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 4, but God, we are the bad news. The good news does not depend on us. How could it, given that description? The good news depends on God. Here's us and our being children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, and it must be, if sinners, the likes of us, would be saved being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Romans 5.8, even while we were still sinners. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, now listen to this, made us alive together with Christ. Remember, we're dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. How does a dead soul, a dead person, believe the gospel and repent and come to Christ, become a saint? Because the God of life regenerates him. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And oh, by the way, this is what this phrase means. By grace, you have been saved. And then he repeats that phrase in verse, in verse 8. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. But grace doesn't begin in verse 8. Grace begins in verse 5 as God breathes new life into our hearts so that we would repent and believe. The, the classic illustration is Jesus saying to Lazarus, who had been dead for three days in, his, in the tomb, already going through rigor mortis. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And clever Lazarus made a good decision and came out of the tomb. Good for Lazarus. Obviously, obviously, there's, there are the, the audible words of Christ, Lazarus come forth, but there was behind the scenes and invisibly and mysteriously, but very powerfully, the word of Christ that breathed new life into Lazarus's body and soul. Jesus raised Lazarus to life so that Lazarus could respond to Christ's word. That's the analogy for our salvation. Sure, we, we believed. We repented. We came to Christ and we were saved. But don't forget, we were dead. Remember what we saw last Lord's Day? We became volunteers in the day of God's power. When you were saved, when I was saved, at some point in our lives, the, the word of God that we heard was accompanying, accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit who caused us to be born from above, who regenerated us so that we who were dead became alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And just in case, in case there's confusion, Paul said in Romans 11 verses 5 and 6, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. When it comes to our salvation, it's either us or it's God. It's either works or it's grace, but the two cannot be mixed. And, it, and indeed, salvation is by grace alone. Finally, and fifthly, soli deo gloria, which means, quoting again from Mr. Barrett, only God receives glory for our salvation. It's a great work. It's, it's perhaps the greatest work. God admires the works of his hands everywhere in creation, but the work of God's hands in terms of our salvation even cause angels to wonder. In Ephesians chapter 2, we were just there. Notice, for by grace you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved. End of verse 9. Not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. Because if our salvation was on the basis of human works, in some way, shape, or form, to any degree, then to that degree, there's room for boasting. But Paul says, it is this way so that no one, no one may boast. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when Paul uh, spells out to the Corinthian believers that they are not a very impressive bunch, humanly speaking. All of this is to uh, point out verses 30 and 31, 1 Corinthians 1, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And we sing of this reality every time we sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross by Isaac Watts. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. And do you see what the, um, the takeaway is? Th this is so much more than doctrine. It's good news. It's mean, it means that if you're a believer then you can come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith today and be saved no matter how bad your sins have been and no, no matter how long you've been living in them. And if you're a believer, it means that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It means that no one can pluck you from out of Christ's hand. No one can pluck you from out of the Father's hand. It means that your salvation as a believer is secure because it is all in Christ alone and it is all through faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And so we can rest secure in the salvation by which Jesus Christ has rescued us, by which God the Father has translated us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of his love. 